is Archbishop William Laurie of Baltimore, and you are listening to Catholic Review Radio. Catholic Review Radio is a weekly radio program and podcast hosted by Catholic Review Media, the news operation of the Archdiocese of Baltimore. We are grateful to our Catholic partners for the opportunity to bring quality Catholic programming to our listeners each week. Welcome to Catholic Review Radio. I'm George Matisek. The Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis is one of the most beloved children's series of all time. Joining us to provide some insights into Lewis's imaginative world is Leonard J. DiLorenzo, editor of The Chronicles of Transformation, A Spiritual Journey with C.S. Lewis. The Chronicles of Transformation is a compilation of essays about each of the seven books in the Chronicles series. DiLorenzo serves in the McGrath Institute of Church Life and teaches theology at the University of Notre Dame. Leonard, thanks so much for being here on Catholic Review Radio. It's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. The Chronicles of Narnia has such a universal appeal across so many generations. What's the secret to its success? Why, Why is it such a popular series? I think the first secret is that it's just a really good and compelling story. I think if it were not a well-written story, if it didn't capture you into its atmosphere, into its world, it wouldn't stand the test of time. It might be, you know, a period piece of interest uh, now and again, maybe at one age or another. But I think its enduring popularity is a testament to just the fact that it's a well-told story and it's a intriguing world to enter into and children enjoy it and adults later in life sometimes come back to a new enjoyment of it. Mm-hmm. I remember reading it as a child and you're just mesmerized by the descriptions that he does. Like you, you feel the crunching snow almost when you're coming out of the wardrobe <laughs> or, or you're being drawn into that picture of the Dawn Treader. That's right. About, that's right. Can you talk about yeah. the power of that, the vividness of his work? Well, you know, uh, he started writing the Chronicles for his goddaughter. His name was Lucy. And I think it's kind of shows some of his childlikeness and his understanding of how to communicate with anyone, but especially with children, that there was an intended audience. It was a, it was from the beginning written to this young girl who, as he says in in his note to her, uh, you know, I, I learned that girls grow faster than stories. And by the time he finished it, um, she may have outgrown this and would have to wait till she was older to enjoy it again, because she's in those maybe middle teen years where uh, you become a little bit too sophisticated, perhaps, in your own mind to enjoy it. But the vividness, I think, of the story is part of what captures children. Children are really excellent uh, readers or listeners to story. They pay close attention to details. They allow themselves to be drawn in. And I think uh, Lewis gave children a world that was worthy of their attention. And they responded and have responded for generation for decades now with their own interest and love. I remember you wrote that uh, Lewis kind of started this whole enterprise with an image. It was that image of a fawn holding a parcel and an umbrella in a snowy wood. And is that true that he he writes from image before plot? That that seems to be his, the way he works. Yeah, that's, you know, by his own telling from the author's pen, he says this is how it all started. He had this image in his mind, as you're as you're rightly recalling, of a fawn standing next to a lamppost and he wanted to tell a story about that and that of course was Mr. Tumnus and then he had to 
create the narrative that incorporated that image. Um, by his own telling, again, Lewis is, he says he didn't have the central character in mind when he started writing, the central character being the great lion Aslan. But as he was telling that story, he came back and he found that this lion was just bounding into the scene. And before he knew it, the entire narrative was being pulled towards or drawn toward that lion. And so it really did begin, at least on his own telling, with this image and wanting to tell a story about it. And I suppose in the fertile ground of his own imagination, the rest of this narrative kind of came into place. So he didn't start, and I think this is important, wanting to write some kind of Christian allegory or something like that. He did that in other places. He did that, say, with The Pilgrim's Regress, which for my money is one of the most unreadable things he, he ever wrote. But um, here, the Christian elements sort of came in out of his own imagination as it was formed, not with an intention beforehand, but because that's the kind of world that he would see. And he eventually imagined this world, Narnia, with the question of what would it be like if such and such a world like this was in need of redemption? How might that go about? Well, you talk in your book about how C.S. Lewis really bristled at that notion of his work being a Christian allegory, and and he mm. he used the term supposal literature in place right. of allegor allegorical literature. Could you talk about what does that mean? Sure. Yeah. Just to echo somebody just said here that the he he what he describes as a supposal is something like suppose there is such and such a world, and suppose it's in need of redemption. How do we suppose that might take place? So that's what he means by supposal. But I think one of the reasons he's so allergic or resistant to the to the label of allegory upon the Chronicles might, in fact, be because of his association and friendship with Tolkien, that allegory was seen by Tolkien and therefore also in their friendship by Lewis as a lesser art form. The higher form of art would be myth to create an entirely sort of self-contained world with its own mythology, with its own background, with its own where everything is sort of contained within that narrative. Of course, if we think of the Lord of the Rings, that's the case, right? It's an entirely uh, sort of self-contained world that can speak to us, of course, in our world, but you enter into Middle Earth and to its own mythology and languages when you go in to the Lord of the Rings. It seems that on the early reviews of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the first uh, chronicle that he authored and published, there was uh, a considerable amount of response to say this is a you know a fantastic Christian allegory, which it seems that that made Lewis bristle, right? Like he didn't want to write allegory. By the time he came to the third chronicle that he wrote, which is the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, that chronicle is much more mythological. You'd say that it it he really takes a step forward. It seems in trying to truly square these chronicles in what he understands as myth or mythos, um, fairy stories as as Tolkien would would describe them as well. And so that's something that Lewis himself as an artist, as a literary artist is working out. And he wants to get away from the resemblance to allegory where there's, you know, more or less a one-to-one -one correspondence between what's happening in this story and what's happening in our world, what's what's true in the Christian story and then what's happening in, in Narnia. Yeah, I think one of the common threads throughout his work is this idea of transformation. You see this repeated over and over again of children starting out one way and ending another. Could you talk about that, how, how that runs through his works? This is really the theme that we wanted to pick up in our volume on the Chronicles of Transformation, which is to kind of read and reimagine this, this entire set of chronicles according to those transformations that take place 
for the children in the story, right? For the characters themselves who are changed and challenged as they go along, but also therefore potentially for us as readers, as children, but then again, as adults, the way in which these particular narratives call for our own transformation, our own way of journeying with and being challenged by what we read in the story. So just to maybe draw forth some examples, I think we certainly see in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, this theme of transformation taking place for the, for the children. When they enter into Narnia through the wardrobe for the first time, they put on these robes that they have found, or these coats that they have found in the wardrobe, because they're entering now into a snowy world. And as Lewis describes it, I'm paraphrasing now, they looked small in their in these coats. They had to grow into them. But those coats are not simply adult coats that they're grabbing from behind them. They're, in fact, regal robes, the robes of royalty that these children have to grow into, because that indeed is their calling. Their calling is to become the kings and queens of Narnia. They are not yet into their regal characters, but they must grow into their regal characters by what they choose, what they endure, what they suffer and what they overcome. You write in your book that the children learn the importance of being a child. And for Lewis, that's the most important thing. Uh, why is that the most important thing? <laughs> <laughs> I think he is attentive to the kind of false maturity or false sophistication, let's say, where we consider ourselves too advanced and we're too puffed up on our own uh, wisdom or self-claimed wisdom to take seriously again the things that we ought to enjoy that ought to uh, sometimes delight us, but also challenge us. And there's a way in which children give themselves over to a story that adults some sometimes lose and actually often lose, especially in their middle years. If you tell a child a story one time and there are, and this is part of Lewis's point, he writes this somewhere. If you tell children a story one time and there are three people standing on the right side of the road and then you tell the story the next time and now there are two people standing on the left side of the road, the child is going to protest. Now, an adult might say that's not an important detail, but the child is so committed to the story and the vividness of it that every part of it matters, that the details matter, and they're willing to kind of allow all of those details to enter into their imagination. Adults, oftentimes we read things and we're looking for what's the point? What's the meaning? What can I take from this? And what we do when we do that is we sometimes refuse to give ourselves over to the story itself, over to the world. We could also speak about the way in which that's an impediment to reading scripture, in fact, that oftentimes, especially as modern readers, we're looking for what's the point of this? We read very vertically. We take this piece of scripture and we try and take the meaning out of it. And then we move to another piece and we try and take the meaning out of it. But the fathers of the early church, when they read scripture, the way that they described it is they were bending over and giving themselves into the world of scripture, where all of these symbols and narratives spoke together and they themselves had to find their way in this world. So to think about it this way, the way Lewis understands children giving themselves over to a story is very similar to the way in which the fathers of the church gave themselves over to the world of scripture. Well, our guest today is Leonard J. DiLorenzo. He's the editor of the Chronicles of Transformation, A Spiritual Journey with C.S. Lewis. We're going to take a little break, and when we come back, we'll continue our conversation. I'm George Matisek. You're listening to Catholic Review Radio. We'll be back in a moment.
every child enters the world with limitless potential. Potential of mind. Potential of body. Potential of spirit. If there was only a place where that potential could be nurtured and challenged every day, where the limits of greatness, once unseen, could now be within reach. Catholic Schools Rise Above. Catholic News from the Archdiocese of Baltimore and around the world with the Catholic Review. Led by the mother, father, and other family members of a 23-year-old Catholic who was shot and killed while working at a T-Mobile store in Canton, nearly 80 people walked through the streets of East Baltimore May 7th in a peaceful call for change. Quote, we want justice, the people shouted in English and Spanish. No more violence in our streets. Fabian Alberto Sanchez Gonzalez, who had worshipped at Sacred Heart of Jesus, Sagrado Corazon de Jesus in Highland Town, and St. Clement I in Lansdowne over the course of his brief life, died May 1st. His death occurred one day after he was shot in a robbery attempt at the T-Mobile store in Canton, where he worked. Two suspects were arrested May 4th, 18-year-old Arthur McCadden and his 14-year-old brother. The walking vigil in Fabian's memory began at Sacred Heart of Jesus and proceeded to the T-Mobile store. Those who walked and spoke at the vigil included Baltimore Mayor Brandon Scott, Baltimore City Council Member Zeke Cohen, Redemptorist Father Alapio Flores, Associate Pastor of Sacred Heart of Jesus, and several leaders from different church denominations. Quote, there is no pain like seeing a life full of potential cut short, said the mayor. But today, all we have to do is pour love into this family, end quote. Alma Rosa Gonzalez, Fabian Sanchez's mother, told the Catholic Review her son dedicated himself to working hard. Quote, he didn't do harm to anyone, she said. My son was always looking after me and after his family. Our family was very close, end quote. Fabian Sanchez was a graduate of St. Ignatius Loyola Academy in Federal Hill. He also attended Crystal Ray Jesuit High School in Fells Point. For more on this story, visit catholicreview.org. Catholic leaders in Britain welcomed the ecumenical and interfaith elements in the May 6th coronation of King Charles III and his consort, Queen Camilla, as well as a pledge by the new monarch not to be served but to serve. The coronation was the 39th in the Gothic building since that of William the Conqueror in 1066. For more on this story, visit catholicreview.org. For Catholic Review Media, I'm Kevin Parks. Remember the spirit of your parish community, the power of worshiping together, the warmth of friends new and old who share your faith. Join us for Mass this weekend. Visit archbelt.org to find a Catholic parish near you. Feel the joy. This is Archbishop William Laurie of Baltimore, and you are listening to Catholic Review Radio. Welcome back to Catholic Review Radio. I'm George Matisek. Today we're talking about C.S. Lewis and the Chronicles of Narnia, and our guest is Leonard J. DiLorenzo, editor of the Chronicles of Transformation, A Spiritual Journey with C.S. Lewis. Leonard serves in the McGrath Institute for Church Life and teaches theology at the University of Notre Dame. Leonard, I've read all of these books with my children. I've got five kids, and we've read them multiple times. We've gone through all the books, and now we're we're starting over on them. And it's just such a great experience to read it as a father, and my wife as well reads it with us. I, could you talk about you? Might, you you touch on this in your book about the experience of reading with your child. Of how important it is is it to to share these stories as a family? Mm. 
Yeah, I think many adults, we rediscover these narratives if, we, if we've if we left them for some time when we turn to read them to our children. And for some adults, maybe we read them for the first time we read them for, to our children. So in this collection, you know, there are seven essays, there are eight essays, actually. There's an introductory essay and then one each on each of the chronicles. I happen to write the one that's on the first chronicle, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And the way I positioned my essay was actually sort of reflecting back to us as adults, the way in which my then five-year-old son, Isaac, absorbed and responded to that chronicle when he first heard it. That is to say, when I first read it to him. And in some ways, like seeing this reflected in a child's eyes or seeing the way me, myself, witnessing the way in which Isaac absorbed what was going on in this narrative, I actually started to see some of what Lewis talks about in terms of us as adults becoming too puffed up and having to become like children again. So, for example, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, as many people are familiar with the narrative, it does come pretty clearly to something like a passion scene, the death of the Redeemer, and a resurrection scene. And for those who are familiar, very familiar with the Christian narrative, who pray it and live it, we can already detect something of this motif setting in when we start to notice the elements of the passion happening around the main character, Aslan. And so we're probably not as surprised when he rises uh, after his death. We just were, in other words, hip to the theme, right? Hip to the theme of the resurrection. But for Isaac, he could not, my son, he could not believe that Aslan, whom he'd come so quickly to love and admire, was dead. He didn't believe that Aslan was dead. It had to be another line. And I had to tell him, no, it's Aslan. And the sorrow and sadness that came over, honestly, like the sorrow that came over Isaac. But then again, the surprise and the joy when Aslan is seen again, standing in the dawn, arrayed in light. I will never forget that, that sort of breath of joy that came into my son Isaac. And that for us as adults, I think, is an instructive thing, not just about the Chronicles of Narnia, but about the mystery of our salvation, let's say. We've become too hip to the theme that Jesus dies and rises. And we take the resurrection, perhaps, as too guaranteed and too obvious of the conclusion that even as we go through perhaps the Paschal mystery, the Triduum, we on Good Friday are already anticipating maybe a little bit too much the resurrection. And we don't allow ourselves to feel the grief and the sorrow, which is also, therefore, the caveat of which that joy springs. So I saw that anew as not just a reader of literature, but as a Christian, witnessing my son go through the sorrow and joy of the death and rising again of this fictional character, Aslan. Hmm. I know in some Christian circles and even among some Catholics, there there's this thought that maybe we shouldn't read the Chronicles because maybe the kids will become too enamored of Aslan <laughs> and then they they won't fall in love with Jesus. Could, could you speak to that, that? So that is that a real danger or is that? I don't know. I, I personally, I don't think it is. But, you know, uh, Lewis received hundreds of letters throughout his life from readers, and he made a point to respond to everyone that that wrote to him, which is a fairly remarkable thing. But he received a lot of letters from children and from parents of children, from his, you know, people who were reading these chronicles, especially. And one mother had written to him and said that her son uh, loved Aslan so much that, in fact, her son, who might have been a little bit scrupulous, 
was afraid that he loved Aslan more than he loved Jesus. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and um, Lewis wrote back to this mother and she said, please tell, I forget his name, maybe it's Lawrence, please tell Lawrence that he need not worry about loving Aslan more than he loves Jesus because anything that he finds lovable and desirable in Aslan is in fact already there in Jesus and it's there more in Jesus. So if he learns to love Aslan, as I have written him, it's only a way of coming to love our Lord better. And I think that's a really beautiful response to a child, not just to sort of tame his fears, but also about how Lewis understands his own imagination producing this character of Aslan, that Aslan was the redeemer. And the only redeemer that Lewis knows in the real world, in our world, is Jesus Christ, who he came later in life, in fact, to worship and to follow with his own heart. So I think that is a way of kind of responding to some of those reservations that people may have. I don't know if there are many of those reservations anymore. I think we're just happy when kids read anything. But with this in particular, the content and the way in which it's written seems especially conducive to fostering belief rather than squashing it. Mm-hmm. Have you had a chance to see the movies that came out recently? Well, not, not so recently now, but a few, I guess about a decade ago. I know I saw the first one. Maybe I saw another one. I don't really like them. They're kind of Disney. They're too Disney-fied for me. Um, they're very faithful to the books. I, in fact, like in, it, almost unfailingly faithful. At least the first one that I saw, um, the line, the witch in the wardrobe. But I just, I didn't need it in a way. Like I, I think what film does for you a lot of time is provide the images to you and take away from you mm-hmm. that responsibility and the joy of creating, constructing the images yourself. And I just didn't enjoy it in the films on this. My experience of the Lord of the Rings was different in a way. I think I had actually seen the films before I even read it, but I find that that storytelling was more authentic in the film. And in some ways, because it couldn't be unfailingly faithful to the books, because it would have been like, you know, a 112 hour marathon to get everything in there. Um, it was like a reinterpretation of the story that I thought worked better. But that's my own perspective on it. I didn't really have any use or love for the films themselves. How were you introduced to the Chronicles of Narnia yourself? Did, did you read it as a child or was it later? As no, I, defi- I actually did not read it as a child. I, in fact, read it when I was in graduate school, which is a funny time to read it, that um, there was a course that one of my somebody who became my colleague later, but when I was in graduate school, he was uh, already a full professor. He was teaching a course that incorporated some of the works of Lewis in a broader kind of uh, study of transformation or theosis deification. And part of our assigned reading as graduate students was to read through all of the Chronicles of Narnia for a few weeks. Um, and I was, I just enjoyed it. I was taken by it from there. And then you know, reading a little bit more from Lewis in that course with some other theological works that we were uh, using, I was able to kind of dig into them theologically and really reflect on what Lewis was putting before our minds and proposing to us. And that was a really fruitful, also scholarly exercise for me at that point. But my first experience of them was really just, especially in the middle of graduate school, something enjoyable to read, which is a breath of fresh air. Not everything was enjoyable (laughs) in graduate school, as you could imagine. There's this ongoing debate on the order in which the Chronicles of Narnia should be read. Do you do you yeah. have an opinion on on which? Yeah, I don't even know why this is a debate. Like it is a debate. You're right, but I think because Harper Collins, when they published uh, the works, they put them in 
the chronological order of the narrative itself, which puts the magician's nephew first, because that's the creation uh, story of Narnia. And then the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe second. Then there's a little bit of, uh, you know, moving of some of the chronicles in the middle. But it makes no sense to me and to the other contributors of this volume, some of whom are actual legitimate Lewis scholars. Um, I just sort of moonlight as one, I suppose. Um, it just seemed, it's so obvious to us that the Lion, the Witch, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe should, and in fact, must go first. And the reason it must go first, not only because it's the first one that Lewis wrote, but because it, without that being first, we ourselves as readers and children as readers lose that order of discovery that we enter into Narnia for the first time with the children in the story, that it is a mysterious and unknown place to us as readers, just as it is to Lucy who enters in there for the first time. If you read The Magician's Nephew first, you lose that in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And to have that in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is invaluable, I think. To actually have to wait on this name of Aslan for the appearance of Aslan, which doesn't come to like chapter seven and the anticipation growing, it's all lost if you don't have the line, the witch and the wardrobe first. We've got about a minute left. Uh, how can readers get your book? So this book was published by Ignatius Press. And I must say, as a publisher, Ignatius did an unbelievable job uh, producing this book. There are uh, original illustrations from an artist, Stephen Barani, that appear in the book and are produced wonderfully by Ignatius. There's a poem cycle by uh, the poet Madeline Infantine that appears in here too. And I'm just so pleased with the way it came together. So Ignatius, Ignatius Press is the publisher of the Chronicles of Transformation. Great. Well, our guest today has been Leonard J. DiLorenzo. He's the editor of the Chronicles of Transformation, A Spiritual Journey with C.S. Lewis. Leonard, thanks again for being here on Catholic Review Radio. My pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. For Catholic Review Radio, I'm George Matisek. Thanks for listening. The Catholic Review is the only publication in the Archdiocese of Baltimore that covers the Catholic Church full-time. Pick up the monthly magazine at your parish or have it delivered to your home. Subscribe to our e-newsletter for twice-weekly updates. Just text CR Media to 84576. Follow the Catholic Review on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Read it today in print or online at catholicreview.org. That's catholicreview.org. Tune in to Catholic Review Radio next week. Available on WMET 1160 AM and 103.1 FM. Also, WSJF 92.7 FM in the Sykesville area and WVTO 92.7 FM in Baltimore City. Check us out on SoundCloud or your favorite podcast app. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Catholic Review Radio. As we prepare for the week ahead, let us do so in prayer together as one community of faith. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let us also ask the blessing and intercession of our Blessed Mother as we pray, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. May Almighty God bless us and keep us always in his love. <laughs>